Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. We are on episode 18. Yay, we're finally legal. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Took you a second there, huh? Sure did. But anyhow. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. Well, yes, episode 18. We're finally legal beagles, I guess you could say. Legal beagles. The, the, the cabin Emporium can now buy cigarettes and lottery tickets and smoke. Wait, no, they can't smoke anymore. That's right, they changed the law. What is it now? It's 21 now. For real? Yeah, that's oh. why you can't go to vape shops unless you're 21 now. Oh, I'd never really paid attention to it, I, I guess. guess. you're old. But I and right not. after you fuck off, let's talk about the fun <laughs> things that we've done this week. The fun things this week? <laughs> yeah. All right. So what fun things have we done this week? I got a, a new tattoo. Yep, you did. It's it very fresh. Uh, you got to witness thunder snow. For the second time in my life. Yeah. Uh, there's probably people like me that had no clue what the fuck thunder snow right. is. So break it down, meteorologist Dave. I was not ready for this to actually break it down how it happens, but... It's a weird weather phenomenon that happens. That's it. People think it's part of global warming. No, it's been happening for years. But what is thunder snow? What happens in thunder snow? Thunder snow is just like lightning and thunder during a thunderstorm. It just in blizzard type conditions. Correct. It's strange. Yep. And if you've never seen it before, it will trip you up for the first time you've ever seen it. Yep. So, uh, for those of us working folks, Friday was employee appreciation day mm -hmm. you got something pretty cool i got a lunchbox from well not a lunchbox a lunch container from my employer full of snacks and it happened to have his favorite snack in there yep and, and they didn't even know they were doing it nope what'd they give you my favorite snack that was in there everything um well, fuck i ate most of it at work so i don't really remember what's all in there you don't remember what you <laughs> ate I remember the Kit Kat bar because that was like the number one thing <laughs> that was in there. And then the fun size pack of M&M's uh -huh. and the double pack of Orange Starburst. So I just kept on going. I don't care what anybody sells. I like the Orange Starbursts. You do? Yep. Oh. So yeah, I was happy that I had a double orange. Red or pink for me. At least I'm not a weirdo that like, the yellow one is probably a fucking serial killer. It might end up on our show if you like yellow ones. <laughs> but anyway. Maybe. Uh, oh, and then, of course, the manly... What, what did you call them when I was eating them? The fruit uh, snacks? Super manly fruit snacks. Yeah, super manly fruit snacks. He or... was sitting in his computer with... Like, you gotta understand, he's 6'5". He's a very big dude, okay? Uh, and he's sitting over there with... And it's like a mini-sized package. So this tiny little package looks like a fucking business card in his giant-ass hand. <laughs> and he's just daintily, like, grabbing one and shoving it in his face. Well, yeah, I'm not... <laughs> it's, if, it's like they are super manly. If I would have ate them, like, any other way, and, like, stuffed the whole pack in my mouth, they would have been gone, like, immediately. What fun would have that been? It's because it was a small pack. It had, like, five in there. There might have been seven. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe miscounted when they packaged it. Could be. But anyway. Yeah. So. Yes. Oddly enough, the one of the games that I've been playing recently, 
that uh, Western game goes along with this week's theme for the most part. Ooh, yes, it do. So what is it you're going to be talking about this week, Sarah? So this week I am talking about a outlaw, a very gentlemanly outlaw. A gentleman outlaw. Yes. That sounds odd. It Yes. Uh, no violence to be spoke of. I know I do true crime, but true crime isn't always just... There was a pile of bodies on the floor, right. and they were covered in blood. Right. So, I'm, still true crime. Just I, mean, I did that with Tony Kurtz's for the most part, but yeah, anyhow. yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. Okay. I'm not giving too much away, but it's an it's an interesting uh, listen. Right. What are you talking about? Well, you know, as always, even though I said I would do true crime, wanted wanted to do more. Mm-hmm. I'm doing, you know, shocker history slash origins of some sort no right and something that goes along with the wild west theme that's very synonymous with it you could say it's about as american as apple pie is the snake oil slash medicine shows oh because most of the time you see them in old western type movies for the most part Mm -hmm. so that's what i chose to do this week nice i'll be interested in hearing this one okay okay so are you ready to get started then? Yes. So, in the present time, like, if a bank was to fuck you over or make an error or whatever, they're usually pretty quick to rectify that. Right. And fix whatever the issue was. Back in the, like, early to mid-1800s, mm-hmm. not such a thing. Basically, you were just stuck living with it and, you know, stuck with the loss of whatever, you know, became from the issue. But not for one person by the name of Charles E. Bowles and his um, issues with Wells Fargo. Okay. Which, you know, the Wells Fargo. Still around. Charles was born in 1829 to Maria and John Bowles in Norfolk, England. He was the third child out of a whopping ten. Daddy needed to give mommy a fucking break. Well, you also had to think during those times, you had a lot of children because of being on farms. You needed a lot of people to do work. So, best way to get people to do the work is they have a bunch of kids. That's why you see a lot of the older black and white photos of these fam- like farm families with six, seven, ten, whatever, uh-huh. hundred thousand kids that they have. It's because you need farm hands. You make your own farm hands for the most part. So you just breed your employees. Pretty much is what they were doing. <laughs> Sweet. Oh, man. When Charles was two years old, his family packed up and left England and immigrated to the States. They settled in Jefferson County in New York, where his father had purchased a nearly 100-acre farm. That's a lot of land. Mm -hmm. See, that's why they had 10 kids. He was decently educated and knew how to read. He had also liked uh, to be outside playing sports. He worked incredibly hard on the farm, but he and a couple of his brothers grew tired of it and chose to leave. Okay. In 1849, they seemed to be your typical and ordinary New Yorkers, and like many others at this time, 20-year-old Charles, his brothers David and Robert, would go on to take part in the California Gold Rush in the early 1850s. Here they would um, be prospecting in the North Fork of the American River near Sacramento. Okay. This was a tough time for these guys. They didn't have much success at mining, 
And two of the brothers that went along with Charles uh, wound up dying after falling ill with, I don't know, because I couldn't find out what right. they had. Probably like dysentery or something. Or... <laughs> oh, brings me back to the Oregon Trail. Yep. Charles would wind up going back to New York in 1852, but he didn't stay long and he went running back to California shortly after. He mined for gold for another two years before he went to Illinois and married a woman named Mary Elizabeth Johnson in 1854. By 1860, the couple had four children and resided in Decatur, Illinois. Two years later, at the age of 33, in 1862, Charles enlisted as a private in the 116th Illinois Regiment. He even took part in Sherman's March to the Sea. I tried to find out what that was. If I remember correctly, Sherman's March to the Sea was during the Civil War where the Union soldiers basically burned everything to the ground okay. that they came across. Okay. Like, it was... I mean, it sounds right for the time. Like, when I say literally everything, literally everything, every building, every thing that the Confederate Army can use as a resource, they destroyed it. Damn. He became a first sergeant within a year, but was badly injured in the Battle of Vicksburg. On June 7th, 1865, after three years of service, Charles was discharged, and he soon returned home to Illinois to be with his family. He spent the next several years in Illinois farming with his family, but decided, yet again, he wanted to search for gold. There isn't a lot of documented history here until um, a letter addressed to his wife came in. It told of how he had an incredibly unpleasant experience with a couple of Wells Fargo agents and how it changed his life. From my research, I was able to find that he was mining with a friend in Montana and somewhere along the line, numerous men from Wells Fargo came by and tried to buy them out of that area. Okay. But Charles and his friend refused and Wells Fargo, uh, the potential buyers, cut off their water supply, which forced them to abandon the mine. Right. So, in essence, they, they got what they wanted. Right. Charles vowed he would get his revenge against them, which in turn led him to a life of crime. He would ultimately become one of the most n notorious stagecoach robbers in Northern California, as well as Southern Oregon, during the 1870s and 1880s. Mary would never hear from Charles again. She would later be told by a third party that there had been a rumor floating around that him and the men that he was, was with at the time were all killed by Indians. Which was probably the most common thing that happened during the gold rush time, other than yeah. being strung down out of your land by the bank, obviously. Like right. He, they were. So with that rumor and no proof otherwise, she believed he was. Right. I mean, you don't hear from him for... Who knows how long? Yeah. And then somebody is like, got information and that's, you know, you're going to take it. It's the first thing you've heard about them. So when Charles settled down in California, he chose to stay in San Francisco and under the name of Charles Bolton. He was in his 50s by now. He stood five foot eight, so he wasn't really a big guy. He's said to have like blue gray eyes and a wiry, like brushy mustache. Yeah, like the Walter Brimley mustache for the most part, but dapper as fuck, probably. I don't know who Walter Brimley is. The Mr. Diabetes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Okay. Yep. You'll see in pictures anyways. Uh, he lived his life there without his family, 
as a very polite socialite. He would tell his rich friends that he owned a mine. He lived at Webb's Hotel wearing nothing but the finest clothing and dining at nothing but the absolute best restaurants that San Francisco had to offer. So as of this point, he's literally living far beyond his means. Right. (laughs) So he did not own a mine at that time because, you know, Wells Fargo took it. He was the poster boy for what you'd expect to see in an established, sophisticated, and polished man of the world. However, it wouldn't be long before the facade would end and people would realize he wasn't as well-rounded as he wanted everyone to believe he was. But then again, he kind of was. Right. So, in the beginning of his career of crime, he chose the nickname Black Bart. would go on and uh, continually rob Wells Fargo stagecoaches. Um, like, did he only specifically go after Wells Fargo stagecoaches yes. or it did not matter? Nope. Only Wells Fargo. Oh, okay. Yep. This happened at least 28 times across North Northern California and Southern Oregon between 1875 and 1883. There were two of his uh, robberies that made him kind of famous and this is what would set off his like uh his signature basically okay. so he left two poems one at the fourth robbery spot and the second one would be at the fifth robbery spot so only two poems left out of 28 robberies but this is like his signature did he find out why he left these two poems in particular or um I'll get to those later on. I actually have the poems to read to you. Okay. Well, like, talk about holding the fucking grudge. 28 stagecoaches from one fucking company. Right. Well, I mean, not only did they take his property, forced him off of it, like, they cut his water off to force him out of the property. I'd be pissed, too. Yeah. Ultimate Karen, almost. (laughs) Word with a crazy stash. Um... So yes, like I said, those two poems being left behind out of the 28 robberies, that became his signature. It ensured his fame, even though it was only twice. Right. Black Bart would be a very successful robber. He took in thousands of dollars per year, and in total, he was able to take $18,000 over the span of his crimes. So... I used your handy-dandy inflation calculator. Fuck yeah. To see what it would be in today's money. Right. So, in total, $18,000. In today's money, that is $566,848.42. I figured that would almost be like around a million compared to today, but... I mean, it's and it was, still yeah, a lot of money. it's still a lot of money, but I figured it would be like... Would it be? I wasn't expecting to be like, oh, twelve million dollars and ninety three cents or anything. No, I was expecting that was <laughs> no. like at least a million is what I was expecting it to come out to be, or very close to it. But no, nope. I mean almost six hundred thousand dollars. Right, but I was meaning like eight, nine, nah. hundred thousand is what, what I mean by it's still a pretty a good chunk of it money. It is. But yeah, with Black Bart's polite demeanor, he gained notoriety. He reportedly never once fired a weapon, never once killed another person. He was polite, he used no foul language, 
even though one of his poems contains the word bitches. Mm-hmm. Again, this would go on to be his trademark. They called him the gentleman, uh, the gentleman outlaw. Yeah. So we're going to get in, into the crimes now. Okay. On July 26th, 1875, Charles robbed his first stagecoach in Calaveras County, California. This happened between Copperopolis and Milton. He was wearing a long cloth duster with a flour sack over his head with eye holes cut out. He jumped out from behind a boulder, and it's said that he spoke very politely with a really deep voice and ordered the driver, John Shine, to throw down the box. So he was like driving stagecoaches as an early version of Batman using the gravelly voice. (laughs) (laughs) The height is a true identity. But dapper as fuck while he did it. Oh, I'm sure. Shine did as asked and handed over the the strong box. Charles shouted, if he dares to shoot, give him a solid volley, boys. Shine saw all of the rifle barrels poking out from the bushes, so he did as he was told. There was even a woman on the stagecoach that offered up her purse, to which Black Bart declined and stated he only wanted the Wells Fargo strongbox. That sounds very reminiscent of John Dillinger saying about the farmer that tried to hand his money over and said, I don't want your money, I just want the bank's money. Mm-hmm. Shine then waited until Charles disappeared before examining the area. He found that the men with rifles were actually just sticks that, <laughs> that Black Bart had stuck into the bushes like... Perfectly, because from a distance, they looked like the barrel of a gun. Mm -hmm. His second robbery would take place on December 28th, 1875. He had stopped the stagecoach on its way from North San Juan to Marysville, California. As with the first robbery, other men had been said to be hiding in the bushes. But we know from this point on, there are no men in bushes. There are sticks in bushes. (laughs) Who would have thought sticks in bushes? Well-executed sticks. On June 2nd, 1876, Black Bart robbed another stagecoach and took only the Wells Fargo box and and mail this time. He took the mail that was in there. Hmm. Um, And this happened like five miles north of Cottonwood, California. Black Bart's fourth robbery was on August 3rd, 1877 on a trail from Point Arena to Duncan Mills, California. This was the very first time... He identified himself as a poet. He stopped the stagecoach between Point Arena and Duncan's Mill, California. He was wearing the same type of clothing he had previously worn in all the others that are documented. He broke into the strong box and took off with the $300 that was inside. This time, he left behind a poem. You're going to love this. Okay. You're going to love this. So it says... I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor, and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of bitches. <laughs> I was, I was be like, there once was a robber from Nantucket. But it's like, no, I'm gonna, I'll wait till she's over before I nope. say it. Nope. Um, and he signed it Black Bart dash the P.O. 8. No clue what the PO8 is. Like is I could not eight? find yes, PO8. Okay. Could not find what the fuck that meant. I tried real hard and I couldn't figure it out. So a little oh, over you, Huh? 
PO8, the poet. PO8, the poet. Oh my god, is that what it is? That'd be my guess. Fuck my life. <laughs> All right. So, a little over a year later, on July 25th, 1878, Black Bart struck again. This time on a stretch between Quincy and Oroville, California. With this being his fifth robbery, it would also be the last one where he left a poem. This one said, Here I lay me down to sleep to await the coming morrow. Perhaps success, perhaps defeat, and everlasting sorrow. Let me come what will, I'll try it on. My condition can't be worse. And if there's money in that box, tis money in my purse. <laughs> well, purse wasn't used as it is today. Right. So. Um, and again, he signed it, Black Bart, the P08. I'm really pissed if it if it's the poet. Yeah, I'll have to look at that later for you. Damn. That it wasn't even a thought. I, I was just blip on my radar. Because I was just thinking, even though, you know, he was illiterate, he could obviously write and everything that maybe just to have fun, he just, instead of writing the word poet correctly, he just threw the eight in there just to mess with anyone, throw him off their, his trail or whatever, who knows. Bushy stashed sons of bitches. Yeah. Even though this was the last poem, his signature robberies will continue on through November of 1883. On November 3rd, 1883, he went back to the same area from his first robbery. He found the, st- he found the stagecoach, which was driven by Reason McConnell. Have you ever heard of anybody named Reason? No. I, th- I thought it was kind of cool. Anyways, um, the stagecoach just well, had... Well, maybe Hoobastank did because of the reason. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, the stagecoach had only one passenger named Jimmy Rolleri. When the coach slowed down to ascend the hill, Jimmy jumped off in hopes of doing a little hunting. But just before the coach came to the top of the hill, Black Bart appeared out of the bushes and ordered McConnell to throw the strong box down. Unfortunately, this time the box had been bolted to the floor of the stagecoach. Oh, well, yeah, because, you know, after how many at this point? Uh... Well, this is his last one, so this would have been number 28. Well, after the first 27, you know, they finally get <laughs> smart to keep the box from going anywhere. Yes. So as you can expect, this was definitely something that uh, Black Bart was not prepared for or ready to deal with. He was expecting just a, a grab and go, basically. As he's done 27 times <clears throat> previous. Mm-hmm. He ordered McConnell to unhitch from the coach and to take Jimmy over the hill. All the while... He was in the coach working to free the strong box, or at least bust it open with the axe that he had with him. Mm-hmm. He was successful and made off with mail. Why he took the mail, I don't know. As well as a heavy sack of gold. Jimmy then appeared out of the bushes and fired two shots at Black Bart, and... His army of sticks failed to shoot back. <laughs> yeah, they did. And he tried to flee, and then McConnell fired off two more shots, one of which hit um, Black Bart in the hand, forcing him to drop the mail. But he was still able to get away with the sack of gold. Though he made his getaway, he had also dropped his glasses, some food, and a handkerchief that had a laundry mark of FX07 on it as he fled. And on the handkerchief, um, with that laundry mark... Mm -hmm. uh, Do you know what a laundromark is? Not exactly. So I guess back then when 
people tailored their clothes, the launderers would like just put a mark in them stating like a number letter combination mm-hmm. to identify those clothing pieces go with this person. Oh, okay. Like coat checks. Right. Like that. You'd get your ticket. They'd put it on a hanger with the same number, except they just put a mark on the inside of the clothing. Um, and because of that laundry mark, uh, that would be the end of Black Bart. Wells Fargo detectives, James B. Hume and Harry N. Morse were able to use the handkerchief to track him to the laundry houses in San Francisco and then ultimately directly to him. Detectives learned that Charles Bowles took a lot of business trips that just so happened to coincide with each and every one of the Wells Fargo stagecoach robberies. No, it's just a pure coincidence. What are they talking about? Um, Yeah. He initially denied that he was Black Bart when the law caught up to him. However, he ended up admitting to everything but only confessed to the crimes prior to 1879. Care to guess why? Uh, Statue of limitations? Yep. He threw out the statute of limitations and how with um, that, anything after that was still within the time frame to be tried for. And he didn't want to be tried. So he's like, you know what? I'll admit to the ones prior to this time. That way you can't get me for it. Detectives back then didn't give a shit. They booked him and he claimed his name when they were booking him as TZ Spaulding. (laughs) So he's... He's already had four names in the story. But again, he would be found out as he still had a Bible on him that his wife had given him that had his real name inscribed inside of it. On the police report, it said that Charles was a person of great endurance. He exhibited genuine wit under most trying circumstances and was extremely proper and polite in behavior. That's why they called him a gentleman. Right. Wells Fargo chose not to throw the entire book at him when they pressed charges, seeing as they only press charges for the last robbery. But that's why they started putting, like, bolting them down was because of him. Right. Yeah. Well, I kind of guess that was the case when, you know, 27 other your stagecoaches get fucking robbed. But yes. why did it take 27 stagecoaches for you to figure out bolt the fucking box down? <laughs> fucking idiots. I, I don't know. know. Charles was convicted and sentenced to six years in the infamous San Quentin prison. He would only serve four of those six years, though, because he was well-behaved, and they released him in January of 1888. Charles's health had begun to deteriorate while he was in prison, and some say it was because of his time in prison that his health declined. Yeah, that was, would have been my guess as well, too, because yeah. they probably weren't very sanitary because prisoners, yeah. 1800s. Yeah, yeah. Um, he had aged rapidly, his eyesight was diminishing, and he had gone fully deaf in one of his ears. And you can imagine that upon the news of his release, reporters were there ready to leap and, you know, talk to him. Right, like, they are some uh, certain other people, too. Yeah, they call them paparazzi now. Well, I was being trying to call them paparazzi, I was just being when certain people are, you yeah. know, released. They asked him when he was released if he was going to rob any more stagecoaches, and he smiled at them and said, No, gentlemen, I'm through with the crime. Charles would never return to his wife after being released from prison, but he did write letters to her. In one of those letters, he said that he was exhausted. He was tired of Wells Fargo shadowing his every move. He said he felt demoralized and wanted to just be away from everyone. 
In February of 1888, Charles left the Nevada house and disappeared. Detective Hume tracked him all the way to Visalia House Hotel in Visalia. The owner of the hotel said a man with the exact description of Charles had been there. Mm -hmm. He had checked in. He had stayed there. But when they went to find him, the room was empty. He was gone. Makes me not wonder if he did that to throw them off his trail and went elsewhere under one of his 17,000 other names. Could, (laughs) Could be. February 28th, 1888 is the last time anyone saw Black Bart. Well, that any anyone knows of. There was a rumor going around that Charles was in Marysville, California near the end of his life and that he was working as a pharmacist. It's believed by many that his gravesite is located in the Marysville Cemetery. Black Bart had also been rumored to have been buried in an unmarked gravesite in Knight's Landing Cemetery in Knight's Landing, California. So nobody really knows where he's buried. Yeah. A Wells Fargo detective that played part in Charles's arrest um, stated in 1897 that he knew for certain that Charles had moved out of the U.S. and was living in Japan. On November 14th, 8088. 80, 80, 80, 80. <laughs> <laughs> We're not that far apart oh. yet. On November 14th, 1888, there was yet another Wells Fargo stagecoach that was robbed by a masked man on the highway. This man left a poem behind that read, So here I've stood while wind and rain have set the trees a-sobbing, and risked my life for that box that wasn't worth the robin. Detective Hume, the Wells Fargo detective that was the lead in locating and capturing Black Bart, examined this poem He compared the handwriting against the two poems that were authenticated as being from Black Bart against this third poem. He was confident in declaring that this was, in fact, not Black Bart. Right. Just the work of a crazed fan copycat. Yeah. So, fun little tiddly bits. So we're going away from fun facts to tiddly bits now? (laughs) Yeah. It's because I wrote the fun bits on here. Okay. The fun little tiddly bits. Okay, fun facts. Fun facts. Um, There is a song by a band that we both like called Volbeat. Okay. Um, They have a song named Black Bart, and it is in reference to this Black Bart. I was kind of wondering about that when you told me they were doing this this story this week. Yep. Uh, probably should have been obvious because the name of the album is like called Gunslingers and Gunsmoke or something mm-hmm. similar to that. Yep. Um, in Redwood Valley, California, there's an annual Black Bart parade that features a man, just a single man, dressed as Black Bart and mimicking what he assumes a stereotypical Old West villain would act like. <laughs> <laughs> That that would be interesting to see. I have to see if that's on YouTube because it's got my curiosity. Yeah. My um, first thought was you're going to talk about reenact one of these stagecoach robberies because there is a Bonnie and Clyde festival that does that as well. Oh, no. Not not that I found. Not that that doesn't exist or has never existed. Just I right. didn't see anything. Uh, there's a large rock on the side of Highway 101 near Redwood Valley that is known by the locals there as Black Bart Rock. Even though it's not the actual rock he had been rumored to have uh, hidden behind while waiting on a stagecoach. But they just assume because it was in that area that that's right. the rock. In Duncan Mills, California, there's a plaque commemorating Black Bart and actually shows his first poem left at the 
the fourth robbery. Which is, I'm assuming that that site, or is it just at a random spot? Um, or the possible spot where it happened. The fourth, uh, it gave. So it didn't say directly where it was. It would tell me trails that it was on, like okay. between the city and the city. So it's very so possible. So it's probably right at trailhead, probably. Yeah, very possible that Duncan Mills was the spot that he did it at, and they yeah. just, you know, had it as in between here to here. So. Well, that's it. That's it? That's my black bar. I only have those few little fun little tiddly bits. Well, all right then. <laughs> all right. So let's talk I've about heard... snakes and... F- well, we're not doing that yet. Okay. Question time. Like I've heard of Black Bart before, but never heard that much about him. Yes. So. I thought he was interesting. Yeah. I love the fact that he threw those little poems in there, the verses. Yeah. The sons of bitches. You fine-haired sons you of bitches was the part that got me. <laughs> but just the look on your face when you're like... Did you ever think that maybe PO8 was just supposed to fun play on words of the of the word poet and you're just yeah. like son of a bitch? I, I did not. <laughs> I did not. You could be entirely right on mm. on the head there though. And you're supposed to be the smart one. Uh, <laughs> no, Mister. Let's change light bulbs outside of the house and answer fucking Jeopardy questions while I do it. <laughs> I'm not the smart one. I'm the smart you. ass. You are the noggin smart person in this relationship <laughs> i'm smart about the shit i i like you're smart about fucking everything well i want to hear about the snake oil and well, medicine shows wait you're saying you like that because you want the attention taken off of you at this point no <laughs> i told you in the beginning that i was excited to hear about this all right so you're ready to hear about the snake oil and the medicine show yes all right so as you know, well, like movies, anything Wild West related, snake oil salesmen, medicine shows generally come up. There was uh-huh. a previous episode I brought them up and don't remember off the top of my head. I probably should have looked it up. No, because we have loyal listeners and they will know exactly what episode you're talking about. I'm sure about. they will, but so, I'm talking about for the new people. Well, then they need to become loyal people and listen to all of the prior episodes. Well, there's your hint. If you don't remember what episode I talked about medicine shows about for, good luck. Go back the last 17 episodes and go find it. <laughs> that's that's your cue to listen to all of them. Again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. P.T. Barnum was most quoted saying there's a sucker born every minute. Unlike Black Bart taking money from stagecoaches at gunpoint, and some people like Clark Stanley and many other quote-unquote doctors would have to be a little bit more convincing to get their hands on your hard-earned money. Medicine shows or snake oil salesmen tend to be associated with the Wild West, but they have also been around as far back as the Dark Ages after the church banned theaters. In these times, it was seemed as sinful and pagan activity. Seriously? Yep. The theaters were associated with the debauchery, violence, and other moral, immoral behaviors. Yeah, wow. I remember, Dark Ages, church was the law. Wow, that's so. true. So the theater performers would have to take their acts out on the street to perform for money at this point. Okay. Hello, Mr. Sticky Mr. Paws. as he decides to join us for my portion of this episode. Yeah. You're going to behave yourself, hopefully. 
You're just going to make sticky spots on the yeah. table. So if you hear sticky cat sounds, I'm sorry about it. You're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> He's a sweaty pod feline. Yep. He's just going to rub on the mic. <laughs> Are you done? Probably not. Probably not. Anyhow. These street performers may also be known as shysters or charlatans. Ooh, shysters. They were also known as mountebacks. Or mountbacks. Not sure. Couldn't find a pronunciation on it. But M-O-U-N-T-E-B-A-N-K-S. Mountbacks. Mountbanks. Not sure. Huh. One example of a mountbank is the partner from the Cantonbury Tales who tricks sinners into buying fake religious relics. Okay. Most of these mountbanks would travel to smaller and larger cities selling their miracle elixirs with a small street show and miraculous cures. My assumption on these cures would be making a blind man see or someone with a walking disability able to walk again without a limp or upright as if nothing was wrong is my best yeah. Dumbass guess, I guess you say uneducated guess, whatever. These traveling petters are of cure-all or miracle elixirs would start to appear in the American colonies before 1772 when legislators in New Jersey and Connecticut would prohibit them from selling door-to-door. Moving them to travel... Moving them... Nope. Making them to start traveling and sell their medicines in rural areas. Rural areas... They consider probably more or less educated, so it would be easier to get their money out of them. Okay. By the 19th century, Mount Banks would give away to the, what's now the medicine show. The rapid growth of patented medicines, or we would know, or more commonly know these as, is over-the-counter medicines like Ooh. Tylenol, for example. OTCs. Yeah. By 1858, there was at least 1,500 patent medicines on record since the beginning of the century which made it much easier for these traveling salesmen to sell a specific product, as most of us have seen in the movies and televisions, they generally would market their product as either a tonic or an elixir. Mm-hmm. I will admit, though, for the longest time, I just assumed that they actually meant the same thing, and elixir just sounds a little bit more professional, mm-hmm. fancy, but there is an actual difference. Tonics, by definition, are a medicinal substance taken to be given to give a feeling of vigor or well-being overall. So, for example, soda pop, or I said soda pop, combine them together, okay. <clears throat> or as I had actually written in here, for example, soda or pop, so nobody can come at me for it, <laughs> <laughs> could be considered a tonic, especially the original Coca-Cola formula that contained cocaine. Why did they ever stop doing that? Just out of curiosity. Because cocaine became illegal in the United States in the early 1900s. Oh. That could be why. But anyhow. I mean, it could be. The original, like, Coca-Cola was also originally marketed as a health drink to cure headaches, neuralgia, or easier known as nerve pain. Okay. Hysteria and melancholy. Now, this is where I'm going to kind of burst the soda bubble about the cocaine and Coca-Cola. Each bottle of Coca-Cola syrup, the syrup itself, mm-hmm. is, contained three and a half grams of the devil's dandruff for the most part. <laughs> The so, Devil's Dandruff? Yeah, that's... You never heard it called that before? I have never heard it called that. <laughs> no. I've heard it called as, like, fucking booger sugar, but <laughs> but never Devil's Dandruff. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah, so because in more in, in these times, 
you would have to go to a soda fountain and a pharmacy to get Coca-Cola before it was a bottled product. Okay. So they would have the Coca-Cola syrup there mixed with the soda water, and you get that. So your actual Coca-Cola drink, actually, when I looked at this, I forgot to put it in there. It said it was like one, it was like one to four hundredth of the actual amount of cocaine in that bottle is actually what you would get in this drink. So basically none. For the most part, but I'm sure it was still enough to give you a little bit of a, you know, pick me up for the most part. That's why yeah. Coca-Cola is advertised as a health drink for the most part. So people want, you know, Coca-Cola put the cocaine back in. That's not good. It, it's not going to happen for on Fravius. Yeah. Now, they did use the coca leaf for quite a few years afterwards after it went through the, as it was put, the decocaining process. Decocaining the coke? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's weird as that sounds. Another one of these popular sodas or pops, soft drinks, whatever you want to call it. Fizzy drink. Fizzy drink. <laughs> That was also considered a health tonic is Dr. Pepper. Oh. Yeah, because there was an old slogan to drink in pepper at 10, 2, and 4. Because it was basically to drink one at 10, 10 in the morning, noon, and at 4 o'clock to keep you awake throughout your day so you weren't feeling sluggish for the most part. Which, huh. probably most of that sugar really is probably what's doing you fucking in. <laughs> right. <laughs> but... Elixirs, though, they are more of a botanical or plant-based and are created for one specific type of ailment, such as the common cold. Elixirs are sweeter than their tonic counterparts, for example. Uh, medicine with bubblegum flavoring we would get as a kid would be considered like an elixir. Because I couldn't find a common everyday product like Coca-Cola or Dr. Pepper to give you an example. That was the first thing I could come up with. And that bubblegum shit was delicious. Reading, you know, the... the by definition on yeah. what an elixir is. That was the best I can come up with. But gotcha. like tonics were overall. Elixirs, one specific thing. Gotcha. By the 1900s, patent medicines were an $80 million business, even though most of these patents medicines seldomly treated what they were marketed for. Instead of having stimulants and actual medications that mostly contained alcohol, opiums, and cocaine commonly... Which in turn would get consumers addicted and to continue to buy them. Well, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, because, you know, as they say, modern medicine's not in the, in the business to curing patients. They're in the business of creating patients for the most part. So it's been going right. on for over 100 I years. I mean, you put the rum in the coconut. And you shake it all up. <laughs> yeah, like I, I would definitely drink some fucking coconut water at that point. Uh, one of these most well-known medicines sold was sold by one of the shows was Sagwa from the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Company. Oh, speaking of Kickapoo, that's a fantastic, tenacious D song. I was wondering if you weren't going to bring that up the first time I said this word. They claimed that Sagwa was a blood, liver, and stomach regulator, and it also would cure consumption, headache, torpid liver, which would mean it's an inactive liver for the most part, and billow biolistness i'm not I trying to fucking figure out how to say this word forever and i couldn't but it can has, i see it has to do with bile functions of your body for the most, most part they would pitch it as genuine native american remedy okay he's gonna have to <laughs> fucking go he's been fine up until he started rubbing on shit sorry buddy gotta get off the trap counter today 
They would pitch it as a genuine Native American remedy, which of course was total bullshit considering Kickapoo Medicine was founded by two white men. <laughs> they would make these claims that Sagawa was made from Yervasi Gersi, Mandrake, Rhubarb, Senna, anise seeds, coriander, coriander seeds, Shinaka bark, yellow dock, burdock, dandelion, cassacra, licorice, and aloes. Yeah, it's the longest list of what they claimed and what was all in there. Okay. But it was really just a mixture of grain alcohols, beers, and laxatives. Seriously? Yep. Wow, so they were just fucking shysters back then, mm-hmm. huh? They wouldn't even list the help of showman Buffalo Bill of the Buffalo Bill Wild West show to sell Sagawa by claiming Indians would soon be without the his horse, gun, or blanket as without Sagawa. Wow. These medicine shows were also prop. These medicine shows were also a popular form of entertainment as these self-proclaimed doctors would give their sales pitch on their cure-alls or health device that they were trying to sell. Uh-huh. Most of these were performed outdoors from their wagons or tents or inside of a theater. They would pitch their products, would work more than likely along with planted testimonials in their crowd and they gathered to watch. So you'd have some random guy like, yeah, it was, you know, it's worked wonders for me. Yeah. I was, I was bald a week ago and now I got a full head of hair when he's really had a full head of hair his entire life. <laughs> right. Uh, they would also create a fake fear or need for these unique medicines it was their only career that, you know, cure to keep this from happening. It's like kind of like some of the COVID-19, you know, things you've seen out there after so long, you know, just all the bullshit remedies people were oh, trying yeah. to sell. Like during... drinking Lysol? Well, I'm not saying like those, but, you know, you see drinking mad bullshit. Yeah, I know what you're it. saying. That was, you know, the scammer ads you see on uh-huh. Facebook for the most part. They would alternate with using entertainment and sales pitches to wear down their audiences to finally give in and buy their products. They would use a combination of musicians Strongman, dogs doing tricks, etc. Things, anything of entertainment value of some sort as a break in between doing their sales pitch. Most of these shows would only spend one night in these towns and move on to the next before people realize that what they sold never worked as intended. Uh-huh. One of these pitches might have sounded something similar to this. How much is your health worth, ladies and gentlemen? It's priceless, isn't it? Well, my friends, one half dollar is all it takes to put you in the bank. That's right, ladies and gents. For 50 pennies, nature's true remedy will succeed where doctors have failed. Only nature can heal, and I have the the nature right here in this little bottle. My secret formula from God's own laboratory, the earth itself, will cure rheumatism, cancer, diabetes, baldness, bad breath, and curvature of the spine. And then, I mean, these pitches would go on much longer than this. That's just a small clip of what it would sound like. And probably would have one of these testimonials jump in at some point. And these people were just like, fucking sweet, we're going to do this and we're going to be healthy and healed. Mm -hmm. Wow. But by 1906, medicine shows started to fade out as the Pure Food and Drug Act would lay the groundwork for the FDA that we know today. Yeah. Some of these medicine shows would... Went on until the 1930s, but for more as a form of entertainment, they weren't selling their uh-huh. bullshit medicines anymore. The name just kind of stuck with them for the most part. Some of these shows would actually last up until the 1950s and would come to an end in competition with advertisements on televisions, and medicine shows would be considered a relic of a much more innocent era. 
Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment would be one of the first bullshit concoctions to fall to the newly passed act in 1906. Okay. After ripping off a healing salve used by Chinese immigrants made from water snakes in their home country, which actually worked because of omega-3 acids that was found in this Chinese water snake. Yeah. That would reduce inflammation. So the Chinese immigrants actually had one that worked. Uh-huh. He took the whole idea of that from there and made his bullshit. In 1879, this is where he would make his claim that after working as a cowboy and with a Hopi medicine man for two years that he had learned the secret of snake oil. Stanley would first market his product at the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. His audience would watch as he would take a live snake from a bag, slice it open, and toss it in the snake into a boiling pot. And then he would proceed to skim the oil left behind on the surface of water, bottle it, and sell it to his audience. The middle going, you know, probably while the snake's boiling, he's going through all of his bullshit about, yeah. you know, this one cure, you know, you having a third leg grown out of your back, some stupid shit or whatever. <laughs> I do have a list of some of his stuff, but his was like super fucking long, so I was not putting them all in here. Yeah. His snake oil would have a long list of cures. Some of his cures that were listed would be toothaches, sprains, swelling, sore throat, animal bites, lumbago, lower back pain, even frostbite. And the list actually goes on and on and on. Like, there's an image that would come up quite a bit and like, Two-thirds of both sides of this ad was just a list of fucking elements that his snake oil would actually cure. Okay. So, with a lot of these patent medicines were killing off people and that would cause the, f- the act that created the FDA, when his snake oil was tested, they actually found it to be fatty compounds of beef, mineral oil, capsaicin from chili peppers, and turpentine. Turpentine? Yep. Which turpentine is actually used as a fragrance in perfumes and cleaning products, but people were taking these orally as well, too. So Right, it's not to be ingested. Right. <laughs> but he didn't care. He got your 50 cents or whatever you were paying for a bottle of this shit. Damn. So he would actually be fined for $20, which came out to be like $575 today on that. So, with a little bit of a fun fact section like you did, I have representations of medicine shows in, like, kind of pop culture. So, like, the first one that sticks into my head is, I think, one of the early missions on Red Dead Redemption 2. You're hired by the local sheriff to go find the snake oil salesman for all these specific reasons. Because somebody died taking one of them, so he sends Arthur off. Arthur goes off to go find the snake oil salesman, which fall, eventually falls off a cliff, and you have to chase after him down a river and lasso him out of the river. And then... Question. Yes. Did they give him his own snake oil to drink to, like, fix his broken bones <laughs> after falling off the cliff? I, no, from <laughs> what I remember watching from the cutscene the other day to refresh my memory on it, uh-huh. no, that didn't happen. Arthur lassos him out of a river, hogties him, takes him back, and just tells the guy to shut up constantly on riding back to the jailhouse. But speaking of Red Dead Redemption, mm-hmm. um, there's supposed to be a character in Red Dead Redemption 2, I believe mm-hmm. it said, yeah, that is based off of Black Bart. But in the game, it is not. He is not called Black Bart. Right. Oh, I'll have to look into that later. Yeah. 
1983 music video for Say 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 with Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney play the roles of snake oil salesmen selling a miracle potion, but they later donate the money to an orphanage by the end of the music video. Oh, how sweet. Um, it's the movie, uh, film adaptation of Sweeney Todd portrayed in, in London. You know, there is a medicine show that goes on, including the song titled Pirelli's Miracle Lecture, which depicts a musical advertisement for a miracle cure to grow hair. And there's also several bands that go by the name Medicine Show. There's like Old Crow Medicine Show, Dr. West Medical Medical Show. You probably have heard the song called Cover of Rolling Stone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the name of that band is Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. Oh, okay. So that's just a couple of names of bands that have gone by that song. Cher has performed a song called Gypsy, Tramps, and Thieves in the story of a girl my is the girl whose family runs a medicine show as well. And there, I mean, this list could probably go on and on. Mm-hmm. That there's, keep thinking Wild Wild West with Will Smith in it. As goofy as that movie was, uh, yeah, I know. there probably was one in there, but I <clears throat> don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah. But like I said, spaghetti westerns, the beginnings with spaghetti westerns, westerns in any types. Yeah. There's always one. I'm surprised there hasn't been one that popped up in Hard West that I've been playing recently. Oh. Well, you mean you're not done with the game, no, so I'm not. it could so it could happen. It could be. So who knows? Huh. Well yeah, that's a little bit on uh that, but but because of all of this bullshit concoctions and whatnot, the term snake oil salesman now basically, you know, comes up when speaking about politicians or somebody <laughs> being a fraud of some sort. It, that that doesn't surprise you me know. at all. Not at all. So you kind of could say that Blackbird himself was kind of a snake oil salesman himself. Kind of. Before he started robbing stagecoaches being the, you know, yeah. the way he presented himself. Living well beyond part. his meat. Yeah. So, you could say that. But that a little cool. more positive thing about that. During, when the, during the production of a very particular Disney movie, which I'm not going to tell you yet, that one of the composers if i remember correctly was having writer's block uh-huh. and one of his children came home and found out they had a vaccination at school today and he's like how was your shot and he said it wasn't a shot it was a drop of medicine on a sugar cube ding light bulb goes off for the song a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down and oh. mary poppins no way yep huh i never would have never would have connected that that's fun so yeah and we don't have sponsors but because we're talking outlaws and back then you know spaghetti <laughs> westerns blah 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 uh there's a company that uh makes a cologne that you wear yep. that smells so good no you mean i can't remember the name of the goddamn company because they cleaned my desk off it's called outlaw uh, i can know that <laughs> But they their smells are very, very awesome. Um, they're very manly smells, so I would say it's definitely more of a men's fragrance, body soap, deodorant mm-hmm. kind of well, wine. I remember there's the Calamity Jane one. Calamity Jane also smells fucking fantastic. What is it? What was it? Cloves and orange, if I believe. If I remember correctly, yeah. Yeah. I got that one for me. It smells amazing. But yeah, <clears throat> it made me think of the outlaw stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
probably the gambler may probably which is the one that i yes. have oh god yes and i'm sure he can attest that every time he sprays that on himself and walks out into the living room and it hits my nose like i'm immediately like looking at him and smiling because he <laughs> smells delicious I don't know, maybe it will be like, they listen like, let's sponsor them! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, check those 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 people out, because <clears throat> they're not a huge they're not. name I mean, yet. I mean, yeah, it's all cold crafted soaps, and th- they make mm-hmm. everything themselves. Yes, it's expensive, yeah. like, it's $8 for a bar of soap, but you're getting good shit. Oh yeah, it's definitely quality. The stuff that you had gotten, isn't that snake... Didn't they name it snake oil something? No, there was a... think you're thinking of is my hair and beard elixir that I have that says no, it's no snake oil on the label. It probably is, yeah. yeah. I don't know. We'll have to check when we're done. Yeah. I know it smells good. Yeah. It's more of a woodsy smell for that for the hair and beard stuff. But. Definitely manly. No. But it's... I mean, it smells good either way. Yeah. My first thing that caught my attention about them was is that you know oh we're using the smell of gunpowder as a fucking scent for soap i was like what (laughs) yeah and that yeah that's one of the things with them is that they use very obscure smells that work really well together yeah but yeah the gunpowder one was was a different smell that you wouldn't expect to see in campfire and uh gun smoke or something yeah i think is what it was called that one's called fire in the hole so, anyhow, they've all smelled good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to I should look in and see what they got. I haven't looked at them in like over a year. See if Has anything. it been that long? Yeah, I haven't bought any of their stuff in like forever. Oh, but anyhow, huh? But I'm starting to think it's time we close the emporium up for today, Sarah. What do you think? I agree. So, until next time, remember to creep it real. Please check out our website at macabreemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast. But also another popular drink hitting the floor as... (laughs) (laughs) Do you hear a sticky-ass pause? (laughs) You're a fucking hot mess. Anyhow. <laughs> you are so stupid. <clears throat> <clears throat>